Do you have a smart kid who was doing well, but now suddenly seems to be falling apart? Are you having a hard time understanding how a child who rarely struggled in school before is now at risk of failing? On this episode of Brainy Moms, Terry and I interviewed developmental child psychologist, Dr. Janine Janot. Dr. Janot is the author of the book, The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. She explains to us what's happening to these smart kids, why it happens, and how we can help. This episode gets personal. Terry and I have both experienced this with our own children and needed to hear that we aren't alone, and neither are you. Join us for some expert and hopeful advice. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Brainy Moms. I'm Dr. Amy Moore, here with my co-host, Terry Miller, coming to you today from a very snowy and dark Colorado Springs, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. We're excited to introduce you to our guest today, Dr. Janine Janelle. Dr. Janine has a master's degree in school psychology and a doctorate in child and developmental psychology. She's the author of the book, The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. She has over 25 years of experience working with children, teens, and young adults, and is the founder of The Balanced Student, where she provides customized academic coaching. She's originally from Ohio, but now lives in Milton, Georgia with her husband, Tom, and they have three children, Ryan, Maddie, and Kat. I love those names. Yeah. So glad you're here, Janine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, before we even get into this really, really important topic that I am personally super excited about and want to pick your brain about. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about what brought you, what's what's kind of the quick personal story that brought you to this place of this being your, your passion and your niche? Well, it truly is my passion, which I had been looking for for many years as I was a um, was home with my kids for a lot of years after, you know, I when I got the doctorate, um, I was actually nine months pregnant with my first child. And then we moved across the country and it was one of those things. It's like, well, what do I do now? And I ended up staying home, um, spent probably about 10, 12 years with the kids, um, as I had children and doing kind of the mom things, uh, you know, PTA moms groups, play groups, volunteering, all that kind of stuff, um, trying to still kind of stay connected with that, my interest in child development, my interest in education. And what ended up happening was um, when we moved to Georgia, my youngest was entering preschool. And the preschool, actually, after she was there for a year, they were like, oh, you have a PhD in child development, you want to teach a preschool class? And I was like, okay. And so that was kind of my my introduction back into the workforce. And I did that for a little while. And when she went to kindergarten, I got a job teaching college. And at this point, I had this, I had a child in um, elementary school, I had a child in middle school, a child in high school, and I was teaching college. And I had this unbelievable bird's eye view of what was happening kind of across the developmental um, educational span, if you will, to our kids and all the stress and anxiety. And I was seeing the end product, these college students who were showing up in my, you know, freshman classes, extremely overwhelmed and stressed out. And I, I just had a heart for them. I, there was just so much they didn't know. Um, 
And that's where I decided, well, I got to do something. So I started the balanced student where I do um, student and parent coaching. And out of that, I became really passionate because what I realized was how many of our kids are um, really suffering at the hands of the achievement culture that they're in. And it's hard on families, it's hard on our kids. And that's what led me to write The Disintegrating Student. I'd never intended to write a book or do any of this stuff. It all came out seeing what was happening to our children. To your own kids and then what you were seeing when you were teaching, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was everywhere. Because all my my three kids were, you know, they'd be in the high-achieving category. And so they were friends with all the kids who were in the gifted programs. And so I was just seeing so much stress, so much anxiety, um, and just a lack of, of skills that they needed. And they were really, really falling apart at various times. But at some point, it seemed like these kids just hit a point where they started to fall apart. So what is the disintegrating student? Kind of give us a little definition. What does that mean? Yeah. And first, let me so just, just say that when you yeah. look at that word, I, gosh, it creates such a visceral response, doesn't it? You think, what is happening? I mean, I was I was so happy to see your subtitle, right? Smart but falling apart. Um, but it's so intriguing, and like as we dig in, I think um, many parents are going to be able to relate to this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've, I've definitely found that. It was interesting when I first wrote the book. If a student saw the title, they were like, "Oh yeah, I know that. That's me," and they knew immediately what I was talking about. Um, so it's just a, it's a term I coined, uh, to describe these kids. And specifically I was talking about, um, you know, academically gifted kids or really high achieving kids who by and large have enjoyed school. You know, they, they, they're the kids in elementary school who kind of show up and do their homework in class or on the bus, don't really have to study for tests, get good grades. And at some point these kids, hit what I call a rigor tipping point where they become um, kind of overwhelmed with either how much rigor they have, they're overscheduled, they don't have the skills to sport, you know, what they have to do at this point. And it's very disorienting to them. And that's when they kind of fall apart. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what a disintegrating student is. Right. So talk to us a little bit about how widespread that is. and. Um, yeah, talk to us about that first. It's very widespread. So I would have said, initially, I I really was thinking, you know, it's just these high achieving kids who are in this situation. I think with the the (laughs) pandemic, which I wrote the book prior to the pandemic, and nobody could see that coming. But that has been a stressor wide enough and long enough to really impact, I think, all of our children. So I think the majority of kids now seem to be falling apart to some extent. So I think it's incredibly widespread. What's unfortunate that I've found over the years is how how that's misunderstood as far as within each family, the idea that, you know, the kids struggling, they're not sharing it. Um, the, the family struggling, they're not sharing it. So they kind of feel isolated alone. Like this is just happening to us. And so what, when this tends to happen is, um, 
you know, families will notice like a grade start getting kind of inconsistent. So a really bright kid who's always got A's, maybe a B thrown in here or there, all of a sudden might get a C or have not handed in work and things are just not going in the right direction. And so the parent says something like, hey, um, what's going on? And the kid says, I don't know. And the kid's not lying. They really don't know. But a lot of times this sets up um, a really challenging place for parents and kids to be in because there's misunderstandings and miscommunications that start to happen at this point. So there's different stories in a parent's head and a in a child's head as to what's going on here. So the parent's thinking, okay, my kid is just lazy all of a sudden. They don't care about school. They don't care if they graduate or go to college. Um, and because we're well-intentioned parents and we want to be helpful, we're like, you know, do we need to talk to the teacher? You know, can I help you? Do you want a tutor? We do all these things to help. And the kid says, no, I've got this, which they never do, but that's what they say. Um, and so then the parent interprets that as they're in control. They're, they're in control of this. In the kid's head, what's going on is, first of all, they think my parents care more about my grades than they do me which is not the case, of course, but because we do spend such a large percentage of the conversation that we have with our kids talking about academics, they're just, their brain's just doing the stats. Like, clearly that's super important to them. Um, kids are worrying that their parents are disappointed in them. So even though they act like they don't care, they really do. And they really do worry about that. They're very concerned that they're no longer smart. So especially these kids who've never really had to work very hard at getting good grades, when all of a sudden they're getting the feedback that, you know, you're not doing this well, they've internalized being smart. So it's like this personal insult is hit on their self-esteem that, oh my gosh, this is the end of the road for me. I'm no longer smart. And that freaks them out even more because they're not talking to their friends or anybody or their parents about this. So they think it's only them. And so they do all kinds of things to self-handicap and self-sabotage to try to hide it and protect their self-esteem. Yeah. You talk about in your book, you talk about it creates a cognitive dissonance, right? So they have this idea of themselves as smart, but yet they're not performing the way that they historically have been. Well, that doesn't make sense, you know, to their schema about themselves, and then that creates anxiety. Well, and a lot of anxiety. <laughs> and I love that word that goes with it. The cognitive dissonance creates disintegration, disintegration. That there, it's like that same concept that, wait, who I think I am, I, I can't integrate who I think I am with what's really happening. So it's this disintegration. And then and then you think of the, you know, Thanos snapping his Marvel. Marvel movies, Thanos snapping his fingers and the people disintegrate. They go away yeah. bit by bit or like Sandman and the Spider-Man movies. And he just starts the pieces of him just <laughs> fritter away that that's what we're seeing with our kids. That, oh, this, this information is, oh, that's so and Just important. to throw another diss in there. It's uh, what I have found, particularly through the pandemic is it's very disorienting to them. So right now I'm seeing students are incredibly disoriented as, as if they don't know how to be students anymore, especially this year when everything kind of went back to quote unquote normal, when things are not normal. And it's really, I have found thrown students off their game quite a bit. 
So why is this happening? What what are they missing? What do you mean? I'm sorry. Well, are so is this a skills-based problem? Like are are kids missing key skills that they need or is this a parenting issue? Or is this oh, a school it's a, problem? Like why is it happening? <laughs> it's a so it's it's a little bit complicated one of the reasons I wrote the book, but fundamentally when we're at that point where there's these the, the student is starting to disintegrate they you know i just explained what they what the parent and the child actually is thinking in their head that's the misinformation and this communication that's going on the misunderstandings what's actually happening is that the child has just reached a point where they're they're lacking some skills and they're engaging in counterproductive behaviors and it's really a matter of helping them figure out and the areas that that tends to um, be around are time management, organization, uh, study skills and study habits, their mindset around school um, and being smart, all that kind of stuff and sleep screens and stress. And so when, again, these students just have never needed that stuff, they've been able to compensate by just being very bright and capable and once they once they can accept that um, there's something they can do that they can have some control over um, their ability to bring their grades up, that changes everything. The problem is that mindset piece is really challenging. And again, particularly now, um, being two years into the pandemic, having a kid. Uh, be their their motivation is so low right now and burnout is so high and mental health issues are um, a big problem. It's a lot of work to, you got to build that mindset piece up first before you can go in and say, okay, well, you need to keep this kind of a calendar. You need to um, get this much sleep or, you know, whatever our screen device, I can tell students all day long strategies, tips and things, and they'll understand it and they'll agree. Yeah, that'd be great. But if they're not in a place to actually receive that in a way that they can execute it, it's a waste of their time and my time. So that's probably the biggest um, hiccup we face right now. Okay. I want to I come back to that term cognitive dissonance. Um, in the book, you talk about, when you're talking about cognitive dissonance, you were talking about how parents tend to, we want to praise our children. We want to encourage our children. And so that's, that's this thing we think we're doing well, honey, you're so smart. We started when they're in kindergarten, look at that picture you did. And it's really just a wreck of colors all over the place, but we say, you're an artist. You're so gifted. And, and then they're in math and they get, you know, in second grade and they're getting basic concepts. You're so smart. You're so smart. You're a math whiz. You're amazing. And what you talked about is then they get to a certain point where they start struggling in school, but there's this cognitive dissonance. We've been telling them, you're so smart. You're so smart. You're amazing. And they start going, but I'm not doing well in math or I'm having trouble or I'm falling behind. They don't want to tell anyone. They're embarrassed. There's this identity crisis. So my question for you is, what do we do? Two questions. What do we do differently from the beginning? And number two, what do we do if we've already messed it up? Those are what do I do for, for my 15-year-old yeah. who already 
Anyway, yeah, jump Same. in. <laughs> Same. I mean, everything that I talk about in the book regarding parents, because again, we are so well-intentioned in what we do because we love our kids. We want the best for them. We want them to be successful. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is some of the things that we do with good intentions and out of love end up not being particularly helpful. And I think, you know, first of all, when you talk about praise, what we, what would benefit our kids more than you're so awesome, you're so smart, you're such a great athlete, all those kinds of easy things to say that we, again, well, well-intentioned and we mean it. It's like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. There are kids, of course, they're amazing. Um, the problem is that is person-centered praise. So that's why it ends up if you're if you're a two-year-old and starting to hear how smart you are, and you keep hearing that like all through elementary school, you internalize I'm a smart person. And the problem becomes when there is feedback that oh, it looks like she froze. We may have a little technical glitch here. Yeah. We'll just wait this out for a wait, second. Just a second. See what happens? Yeah. This is so valid because, you know, Amy, I'm thinking I've talked to you about Canyon, my 15 year old who is so smart, but yeah, I want help now that I've messed it up. Well, I've got a kid in therapy right now because he was experiencing so much anxiety because he thought he was disappointing us, Right. whereas we never imposed those expectations of perfection or even an expectation that he gets all B's, right? Mm-hmm. Our expectation is you pass school, right? right. Um, but for some reason, he he got it in his head because his dad and I are classic overachievers, Yeah, right? That our expectation was that he was perfect too. Yeah. And so now he's in therapy over it, right? Yeah. And, I, like I think back, what what did I say to give him that impression? What did right. I do to give him that impression? And like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna back down on my goals and achieving my goals so that my kids say, oh, mediocrity, 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 is okay, right. right? Yeah, mediocrity is cool. Yeah, but at the same time, um, I, I don't expect that of my children. Like, I don't expect them to have the, am I making any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if we can get Janine back in here to help. Cause yeah, I want to hear about, you know, well, I want to, I want her to address that thing of how do we, how do we help when, uh, when it's already been messed up, you know, like, yeah, for, yeah. Canyon that's 15 for Nakota that's 11 and they have so much high performance anxiety. They, I think I did all those things wrong. You're so great. You're so smart. But now it's too late. I did I did the person-centered praise like you talked about, Janine, instead of focusing on their hard work and their efforts, mm-hmm. instead of work, instead of focusing on what all people can achieve, a spectrum of efforts. But so I did it wrong. What do I do now? Yeah. So Okay, so oh, we're man. having in, yeah, so we're having a storm here in Colorado right now, and so it could be that that's what's impacting um, our connection with 
Dr. Janine Janelle. Yeah. Um, We want to pause or just. And so I think we'll pause for a few minutes until we can get that uh, fixed. Okay. So what, what would I do to help Nakoda? How could I help my sweet boy that's 11 and has so much performance anxiety in school? So when we want to, you know, looking at our kids from that, you know, what we're telling them and how we're trying to encourage them and how we're trying to show up in a loving way for them to really start talking to them about the effort that they're putting in, the things that are in their control. So, you know, how, you know, how hard they work at something. I've noticed a lot of students today effort is a bad thing to them. Like if I have to try real hard and if it's, you know, if it's really challenging and if there's a chance I'm not going to be great at it, I'm not going to do it. And they may come out and just say, I don't, I don't want to do it, but they may also be kind of hiding that around things like saying things like, Oh, you know, that's just stupid. Or um, I could, if I wanted to, but I don't. And um, so we have to watch that because a lot of times they're protecting themselves. And when it comes to, you know, what do we do when we've already kind of raised kids who have this kind of fixed way of thinking about themselves, like I'm as good as I'm going to get. Um, so that the best thing we can do as parents, and this is kind of the hardest thing, is we can model it ourselves. So we too can be kind of in that place of um feeling a little bit threatened and not wanting to try things out of our comfort zone or be challenged or take risks, all the things we kind of want to see our, our kids be able to do. And if we can, if we can show them kind of live out loud and model to, you know, like this is hard. like when I wrote the book, that, that was something I'm not an author, you know, why would I write a book? So I, it felt very vulnerable to me. I had absolutely no idea how it was going to go. It felt very risky, but I was able to kind of play it out in front of my kids to show them what that looks like, the ups, the downs, the good, the bad. And I think that's really, really helpful for our kids. And also, normalizing things like making mistakes. So if you put in effort in something that's challenging, you may not meet that high expectation that you have, but at the same time, you, you're going to learn along the way and make that okay. We normalize that in our houses. I always uh, encourage people to like have a competition around dinner, like, all right, let's, what mistakes did you make today? You know, and see, see who can come up with the best one so that it becomes like, it's not something to hide or be ashamed of or to steer yourself away from. That's really good. I feel like that's a practical thing that I could put it. Yeah. That I could put into place right away thinking that I'm going to model tackling something like I'm going to write a book. Oh, that feels (laughs) a little daunting. You know, I know do it, Terry. Okay. Work hard. But Okay, sit at the dinner table and instead of say, so what's the best thing that happened to you today, honey? I could say, what was your biggest flop today? Let's all go around and talk about where was my where was my worst mistake today, even if it was a small one. I love that. It will normalize it. It will help us to talk about it. And if I can keep doing that so that it's not just, oh, I just do it tonight. It's right. going to do just what you said. It's going to start making it making it okay to fail and to try 
because we can't try new things if we're not willing to fail. Absolutely. Yeah. It also helps keep the, the negative self-talk that we'll get in our own heads ar- around mistakes that we make. We mm-hmm. tend to think about, uh, you know, we, we're hard on ourselves more so than we would be on somebody else. So if you've like had an opportunity to kind of test the waters with this, with people who care about you around a dinner table, then you might not go there in your head with, oh, that's just the worst thing. And I'm so stupid. And why do I always do this? Um, it can really be self-protective in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I always say that we want our children to experience mistakes and failures in the emotional safety you know, of our home and our relationship with them so that they do know how to handle it. You know, the therapist in me is always about, okay, you know, how can we reframe this? What are the barriers, barriers to success the next time, right? How can we turn worry into wonder here? And so um, for parents to be able to have that vulnerability um, and talk about their own mistakes and then what they learned from them. I think I love that idea of modeling yeah. that because it doesn't matter how much of an overachiever you may be as a parent, you're still not perfect, yeah. right? You still no. are flopping throughout that process. Yeah. And just to be like, but Hey, think- if we're not making mistakes every day that like, if maybe one kid's like, I don't know, I didn't, I don't want any mistake. So then start talking about, well, gosh, I mean, that might be a red flag because if you're not making any mistakes, maybe you're not trying new things enough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. So talk a little bit about how this achievement culture is kind of perpetuate perpetuating what we're seeing here. So I think of the, uh, you know, I I feel like as a parent, when my kids were really struggling, I was always looking for someone to blame. I was, you know, it was either their fault or their friend's fault or the teacher's fault or the school's fault. And, you know, what I've learned over the years is there's plenty of blame to go around and it really plays no role to try to lay blame in certain places. And ultimately, the blame really goes to the culture that we've created over the last several decades, which is the achievement culture where we value data more than learning. And this is a culture that our kids, you know, a couple generations of kids have been raised in. But this one in particular on top of all the other things that this generation has that's unique to them, like being born into, you know, screens and tech. Um, the achievement culture is what's driving us to parent the way we're parenting. It's, it's driving, you know, schools to have the kinds of policies in place that they have in place. Um, colleges, the admissions is is driven by this, this, pol- uh, this culture. And our students are responding and how they are responding is they're acting like they are their data points. So I am as good as my grade. I need to do what I need to do to get the grade, check the box. That's why cheating is such an issue right now and so widespread because they all understand, well, there's too much to do and I need to get it done because it's more important that I just get the check or just get the grade or make my GPA X. Um, And so it's justifiable in their minds. And I'm talking about like all students, I have not come across one student who has said, oh, absolutely not. I don't cheat. Um, That's part that's baked in the cake these days. And I think, you know, educators are very well aware of it. We're certainly aware of it at the college level. Um, So 
what this has done is this turn. And this is why so many of our kids are miserable. How, how awful to show up to your quote unquote job every day and just try to figure out a way to, you know, check all the boxes and, and make it look really, really good without a regard for what you're getting out of it. So, you know, there's just not that meaning connected to it. They're, they're not enjoying themselves. They're not learning and retaining information like we want them to. And this is, this is the part that's so disheartening to me because I think it's contributing to how, why motivation is so low in our students because motivation takes um, a sense of control. We have to feel like we have control in the situation, autonomy, um, confidence, like we can do what we're being asked to do and some connections so that it's meaningful to us. And when you think about students, those three things tend to be lacking remarkably right now. And I think that's part of why motivation is so low. And parents, again, us being very well-intentioned, we're responding to the achievement culture that says, well, if you want to get into college X, Y, or Z, well, your kid better do all these things have this GPA. And so we're responding. It's, it comes from love, but it turns into fear at some point when we start to talk to our kids because we're worried about them. We're worried about the impact of a C in this class or failing something or not, um, not applying to this school or whatever it is. And then we put that on them. So we offload our fear because we're worried about their success and we know they're not looking long-term in the same way we are. So we're trying to protect them, but it all just, it just snowballs. And that's the achievement culture that's putting pressure on all of us to behave in a way that I think in our guts, we know is not good for learning. And I, I honestly think that's the piece that has to we have to move the needle on that. And I think it's going to take a really long time because you don't change cultures overnight. But I do think parents have um, the opportunity to deal with the achievement culture as it stands in their own family. And by that, I mean, sitting down with our kids and having a conversation with them and just saying, hey, so here's the deal. Uh, you know, here's how this all works. Here's the expectations at school. Here's what it takes to get into this college, blah, 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 lay it all. Just be honest about what it is. And then have an honest discussion with your child about what, what are our expectations? What is your expectation? What does success look like in our family? Is it a 4.0? And eight APs, is that what we're defining as success? Or are we going to look at success as, you know, some other, you know, measure along the way? And I think that's the way that we kind of get our hands around the achievement culture in a way that we can we can parent and our kids can be students from a place that feels a little bit um, more comfortable. Sure. I think this is so important. I want to just like recap for our listeners. Like I want to, I want to create a little meme, a little sound bite. (laughs) And so like I'm, what I'm hearing and that's really, really ringing true in my own family. It's kind of like what you talked about, Amy, that, that we have this achievement culture, even in my personal family, I get it. It's in the culture 
but it is perpetuated in my personal family. If you're going to be a runner, you're going to be the best runner. You know, my husband's an athlete. You know, if if you're going to go to this school, this Colorado early colleges, you know, take as many college classes as you can. And I perpetuate that, you know, I mean, it's, it is just in our family. And then what I'm seeing is this resulting, like you said, cognitive dissonance, disintegration. So then some of my kids, I'm seeing their go, seeing them kind of go, well, whatever I give up. I, it's not worth it. Nothing I do will make a difference. I can't achieve it. So then there's the disintegration. And you said something just a minute ago. This is where I want to create a soundbite, a meme. You said motivation requires three things. I'm taking notes. Give us a little meme about how to help our kids when they're in that place of disintegration. What is motivation again? What does motivation require? So for our kids to feel motivated, they need to feel in control. So they need to feel like they have autonomy in the situation. They need to feel like they're competent, like they're able to do what's being asked of them and successfully, and they need to feel connected. So it's three C's. Um, And the connection means it feels meaningful to them. And when our kids are faced with all the stuff they're faced with in school, those three things tend to be missing. And that explains so much why our kids are not feeling motivated these days. I love that. And it, kind of rings of Daniel Pink and his, you know, work on drive and motivation too. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to um, what you talked about, about being data-driven and about how we just test our kids right out of being motivated. And you gave an analogy in your book and you said something like, imagine if your boss tested you every few months and half of what was on that test didn't have anything to do with your skill set or your job description. It was completely irrelevant. Like, how would that impact your motivation, your desire to perform, right? Whether you would want to even be in that work culture. I mean, if we would, took three minutes to think about that and apply that same idea to what we're doing to our kids... I mean, we could we would say, like, I don't like my job and I don't want to show up to, to my job today, which is exactly what our kids are saying. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so I think that, you know, there is power in advocacy and there's power in parents, you know, saying something is wrong. Let's speak up. Because mm-hmm. how many parents are in the country? <laughs> I mean, th- that's yeah, a, exactly. lot of mm-hmm. a lot of voices. It's a lot of voices. Yeah. And I, I would I would encourage parents when you're having that that conversation in your family about what does success look like for us, the next step after you determine that is to go to the school. And you know, if so, with my um, youngest who is a freshman in college now, it, her senior year, actually all through high school, um, we sort of I, you know I, I really tried very very hard to pull back and give her as much control as possible. That meant a lot of screaming alone in my closet, thinking things were going to go really south really fast a lot of times. Um, but she made it through and she, she actually made it through quite successfully. But I, I, I had to go to her teachers and say, look, I'm out of this. Don't send me the emails telling me, you know, this needs to be done. You need yes. to talk with her she's in control. So, cause there's this whole thing where we say we want, you know, the, 
educators say it, you know, the schools will say, well, you're, you know, your high school students should be advocating for themselves and doing X, Y, and Z. Yet at the same time, they're like, you parent need to be checking the portal and making sure and it's kind of like, wait a minute, those two things do not add up. Right. <laughs> um, so I had to be very explicit and say, look, I'm out. I mean, I'm, I'm there for her if she needs me, but you're, I'm not an inter intermediary for you to, you know, kind of reach my daughter that, you know, she's not going to handle it. Then there's going to be consequences. She's going to be in summer school or not go to college or whatever it is. But she and I sat down and agreed that that's how she wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. And it worked out better than I could have ever imagined. I mean, I was scared to death, to be honest with you. Um, and she's incredibly happy and successful in college in a way. And she actually likes school now, which I could not have said about her in high school. So, you know, there's a lot of trusting that goes on in this process that I explained in the book about how, you know, a lot of times us backing off and just listening more and being supportive, like that, that's really our superpower more so than being that micromanaging person who's trying to make sure there are no bad consequences for our kids that ends up backfiring. And I end up seeing those kids in my coaching when they're in college and they've fallen apart their first semester. So I mean, I say that to say, I get how stressful it is to pull back as a parent. Um, But I just, I think it's, you know, do it incrementally, but it's definitely worth trying to make some strides in that area because it goes a long, long way to making your kids more successful and more competent. Absolutely. So we need to take a quick break and let Terry uh, read a word from our sponsor, Learning RX. And when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the last half of your book where you actually give 70 tips uh, to parents. And so uh, we want to hear a few of those. Are you concerned about your child's reading or spelling performance? Are you worried your child's reading curriculum isn't thorough enough? Well, most learning struggles aren't the results of poor curriculum or instruction. They're typically caused by having cognitive skills that need to be strengthened. Skills like auditory processing, memory, and processing speed. Learning RX one-on-one brain training programs are designed to target and strengthen the skills that we rely on for reading, spelling, writing, and learning. Learning RX can help you identify which skills may be keeping your child from performing their best. In fact, we've worked with more than 100,000 children and adults who wanted to think and perform better. They'd like to help get your child on the path to a brighter and more confident future Give LearningRx a call at 866-BRAIN-01 or visit learningrx.com. That's learningrx.com. And we're back talking to Dr. Janine Janot um, about the disintegrating student. So smart kids who are falling apart and what we can do to help turn that around. And um, I actually misquoted the number of tips that you give in your book. You give 77 <laughs> tips. <laughs> I shorted you there. Yeah. Um, so um, you've organized them around um, 
different um, areas. So organization, time management, study skills and habits, mindset, stress, sleep, and screens. And those are the areas that you were talking about were actually the contributors to the disintegration and all of the cognitive dissonance that we've been talking about. So um, can you share with our listeners several of those tips so that they can have that immediate takeaway and get started before they are waiting for your book to arrive through Amazon delivery? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Sure. Um, So... I, one of the things that I find I start with almost every student um, that I see in my coaching is with, uh, they need a time management system. So uh, most schools, at least at some point have done the thing where they give all the students the agendas and, you know, they fill them out at school. That has worked historically, I think, with students like in the elementary school where, where the teacher is helping the student and the parent is helping the student. And it's, it's more of like a conduit for communication and keeping track of things. When they get into middle school, they tend to just give the student the agenda and say, here you go. And every, it, it, there's probably 10% or less of students who kind of have the DNA to just take that up and be like, yes, my agenda and keep keep track of it, keep up with it. And um, the rest of the kids are just like, okay, I'm going to do this. Everybody else needs to do this. Everybody's telling me to do this. And so they do it for a couple of days and they forget about it in their backpack and it's gone by the wayside. So what I, what I do with students is a really simple master calendar pocket schedule combination where I try to get them to externalize their commitments, their responsibilities. So starting to practice that in middle school, particularly seventh, eighth grade, because that's about when the brain is able to um, project out into the future and have some sort of um, future forecasting. So if you do it too soon, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to them. But around middle school, they can have a calendar, they can start to put big things on the calendar so they can see their past, present and future. And then I teach them to do a very simple pocket schedule, which is a way to track what they need to take care of during the day and what comes up during the day that they can transfer back onto that master calendar. And it's really, really simple. It works really well with students um, with executive functioning weaknesses, ADHD. Um, so that's one of the that's one of the things that I tend to almost always do with a student, whether it's a middle school or a high school or a college student. That's that's one of my favorite um, kind of getting started tips. Another thing I work with students a lot on is sleep because our students are so sleep deprived um, on average, particularly by the time they get in. It's actually starting, it's going down to seventh and eighth graders. I'm hearing this too. They're getting five or six hours of sleep a night, um, probably the majority of them. That's just not a lot. They should be getting... Um, at a minimum eight, but more like nine would be much more ideal uh, during adolescence. So our kids are sleep deprived. They are very hard to wake up in the morning. I'm sure as you guys know, waking, waking up the kids. And that's partly, you know, I teach them about sleep um, and about their brain that melatonin is produced a little bit later is after they go through puberty. So biologically, they're kind of designed to stay up later and wake up later. So school doesn't fit into their brain's um, idea about what needs to be happening. 
So I, I, I let them know that, but then there's some other things that I think they don't understand as much about um, this hard to wake up. A lot of students will hit the snooze, um, you know, maybe several times, and then they wake up feeling very groggy, um, kind of foggy brain out of it. And I teach them about sleep inertia that, you know, don't hit the snooze because you are likely going to go back into a deep sleep and try to wake yourself out of a deep sleep. And that's where you get that what's called sleep inertia, which can last from 30 minutes to about three hours, which could potentially mean lunchtime for you. You're going to be in this groggy state at school. So, you know, I, I include a lot of tips like that, that it, are information-based, plus there's a, a an action piece to it as well. So they know the why behind why would you, why would you stop hitting the snooze button? Um, yeah, I love that. In fact, when Terry and I first started working together, we're clinical researchers together. And so when we first started working together about six years ago, her passion was about sleep and the sleep brain function connection. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, really, <laughs> I was so bored with it that I'm like, well, that's not what we're going to research. And so as I've evolved <laughs> in, in our brain research, the clinical neuroscientist on our research team talks about how sleep is like a car wash for the brain that it cleanses the brain of the toxins that build up during the day. And so if we want to be able to um, think most efficiently um, during the day, we have to have that sleep. And so when I tell my teenage clients that it's like putting your brain through a car wash, then it kind of clicks. Oh, so physically my brain needs sleep. It isn't that you're just telling me, well, everyone should get this much. And so um, I love that there's a huge focus on that now. Yeah. And I think there's another piece of information students don't realize, and that is it is during sleep that our learning and memory is consolidated. So yes. any, you know, if they've been studying for a couple hours, the best thing they can do is sleep on that because that's where that learning gets connected to existing knowledge. And that's where the durability of learning and memory happen. And without that, you know, the kids who try to stay up all night and cram for a test, you know, they may be able to show up the next morning and, you know, power through the test, but that information is not durable at all. So if they have to have it down the road or for the midterm or the final exam, it's gone and they need to start all over again. So I, I don't think they explicitly ever hear that, like sleep. I, I count sleep time as study time. Nice. Because a lot of students feel guilty. They're like, oh, no, I don't have time to sleep. I want to, you know, and they'll, they'll lose sleep. There's something called what's called bedtime procrastination, where it's, that's when kids are making up for um, lost like social media time. So they'll, they'll procrastinate their bedtime basically to have that relaxing down social connection time. So there's a lot of things our kids are doing just because they don't understand why they shouldn't do it that way when it comes to their sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Um, I actually wrote an article about that recently on the sleep learning connection. So it's um, at the brainhealthmagazine.com if you would like to uh, read more about that science. Um, So what would you like to leave our listeners with that you haven't uh, gotten to touch on today? Well, you know, I worry sometimes talking uh, to parents that, 
you know, when you hear stuff like this, it's, it's, it kind of hits you in your heart and, and your gut. And I know I've spent, you know, years listening to parent experts talk about things and you walk away feeling guilty, like, oh my goodness, I wish I would have, or I should have, or, you know, that regret. And I, right. I never want a parent to feel that way because it's so important to understand. I, I live and breathe this stuff and I make these mistakes all the time. That's just parenting. And I think we just need to show up for our kids in the best self we can show up with every day, be as vulnerable with our kids, be as open and honest and supportive as we can be. And that makes us a rock star parent. That's, they notice that that's what they want. That's what they need. And all that other stuff that I think sometimes we get um, really worried about, like, I need to, I need to, I should, I should. Mm -hmm. It isn't as important. And sometimes it is actually backfiring. That's a great message. Yeah. It creates that. uh, Otherwise we're just creating that achievement mentality inside ourselves that if I'm not doing it perfectly, I'm messing it up instead of, yeah. Instead of like, oh, I failed today as a parent. Awesome. That means I'm trying hard. (laughs) That's okay. It's okay, mom. We're going to mess up. Well, we mess up our kids all the time. Like we always joke. I mean, we can be experts in this field, you know, till the cows come home and we're still going to mess our kids up, but we just keep trying, you know, we do the best we can with new information like this and we keep trying. So So good. Oh, Janine, I'm inspired. I took so many notes. This is so good. Yeah. It was wonderful. Thank you. Um, so we are out of time and need to wrap this up, but we just want to thank you so much, Dr. Janine Janot, for joining us today. Um, if you would like more information about Dr. Janine's work, you can find her on Instagram at jjanot, that is J-J-A-N-N-O-T, um, on Facebook at author J. Y'all, my contacts are so blurry. I cannot read. Can you tell us your Facebook handle? Yeah. It is at author J. Janot. Thank you. And yeah. we'll put those in the show notes for sure. Um, along with, this is crazy. Along with a link um, to access to purchase her book, The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. So look, <laughs> thank you so much for listening today. If you like our podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you would rather see our faces, you can watch the video version of our podcast on YouTube, and you can find us on social media at The Brainy Moms. So look, until next time, we know that you're busy moms and we're busy moms, so we're out. See ya. Thank you. Bye.